this is me, uh, Rachel Parker, uh, jumping in to do a special chat with someone that I'm really excited to introduce to our audience. Um, Tim Cutt, welcome to the Heartland Pod. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Why don't you um, Why don't you give a little bit of an intro uh, as to like what, you know what you're doing now, how you became involved with Mocoa, and um, a little bit about your background. Okay, uh, my name is Tim Cutt. Like she said, I'm the executive director of the uh, Corrections Association here in Missouri. Um, I started Corrections in 1998. <clears throat> I started at the old penitentiary there in Jefferson City. Uh, they closed that down in 2004, so we moved to the new one. Uh, 2009, I started doing this kind of on a part-time thing, uh, helping people figure out the grievance procedure, <clears throat> helping them analyze policy, things like that. And two years ago, the director retired, so I took that over in 2019 is when I took that over. I'm doing that ever since. It's a, it's a struggle. Um, some people may be aware of what the state's been doing the last couple of years as far as right to work laws that they've passed, even though we voted that down. More than you know, it's a, 20, a Senate Bill 1007 is what they actually passed. And that really affected state employment. That was sponsored by uh, Mike Kehoe, Lieutenant Governor now. They called it merit reform, but it's actually the removal of the merit system. The merit system was put in place in the 1940s. And the purpose of that was back then, the only way for you to get a state job is if you knew somebody that could get you in. You didn't have to have merit to be a state employee back then. So they passed laws. You had to pass certain tests. You have to show the state of Missouri that you had the merit to actually get a state job. That's gone now. Uh, you had to have merit. You had to show that, that you had the, the college education or whatever education you needed to get promoted within the state agency. That's so gone. This, this was for any state agency, you're saying? Yes. Not just the prison, not just the well, correction system. That, that affected 16 branches of state employment under the executive branch or 16 okay. agencies under the executive branch is what that affected. And so and is that, how is that impacting? So uh, let me, let me back up a little bit and just talk about how you and I met. Cause I think that's kind of, I don't know. I think it's interesting. Let's have a chat. I reached out to you not long after, um, Governor Mike Parson failed to get his supplemental budget approved and also failed to increase uh, the minimum wage for state workers to $15 an hour. Right. And the first group of people that I thought of were corrections officers because corrections officers always seem to be at the bottom of the pile of people's concern when it comes to acceptable working conditions, living wages, and so forth. And you said something to me I thought was really interesting, which is that while corrections officers make above $15 an hour as the minimum wage, it's actually the other employees of the correction system that don't. And you're, you're, I believe that the correction, and I know this isn't necessarily your area because you're not in administration, but currently the Missouri Corrections Department is having a very difficult time retaining staff for other areas of prison systems, uh, kitchen workers um, and other. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I thought that was really interesting. The Department of Corrections has always had a problem recruiting and retaining employees, and that's just because of the nature of the job. Um, sure, not, of course. Not everybody is built to do that kind of work. Right. The people that are built for that love the job. They, they don't do it you know, necessarily for the money. People that's been there for 10 years, they knew what they was making when they started, which is around you know, 14 bucks an hour that long ago. So any dollar you give them over and above what they you know, agreed to work on, hey, that's money in their pocket. No big deal. It's, you know, it's great. Problem is, the, the pay compression that you have between a cook and a corrections officer is a, is a, it's a pretty wide gap. Uh, most cooks are anywhere from $12 to $13 an hour. 
with the five and a half percent um, COLA raise, the cost of living adjustment that we're going to get, corrections officers will be making almost a little over eighteen dollars an hour. Then um, cooks still thirteen fourteen dollars an hour. Five and a half percent is not a lot of money, especially when you haven't gotten a COLA raise in how many years? You know. On top of that, the cooks they're also trained on the side to work in a custody position because we're so short. Uh, so, yeah. So talk about when that started. So I'm just thinking about how I, I mentioned to you when we were chatting before that in my past, I've known kind of corrections and law enforcement families. I was in a relationship with somebody for several years whose family, they live in Massachusetts and his from very big, very, very, very big family. And most of his uh, aunts and uncles worked in corrections, or at least a lot of them. And so they're, they're law enforcement officers, or they were corrections officers. And um, I, I know the amount of training that they get. And I know the amount of benefits that they get. And I know how they were treated in the Massachusetts uh, correction system. And right. I was pretty shocked when you told me, I mean, truly shocked. I think I was actually dumbstruck, which is for our listeners, they know that's relatively rare for me to have nothing to say. So I want you to talk very specifically about the level of training necessary to be an effective, safe corrections officer. And really, I, I think like you really have a lot of admiration for the job because you did it yourself. Yeah. Um, and, and then talk a little bit more about the danger it poses to not just the officer or not just I said, to, the, to the corrections employee if they're not properly trained, but also to prisoners, so, so wards of the state. I mean, prisoners are essentially wards of the state. So talk a little bit about, because I think things that you said were really alarming, but also very illuminating to me. Uh, you're talking about uh, the actual training we receive for corrections officer training. And most of the, uh, the secretaries that work in here, the cooks, they receive right at 30 days of training when they first start. Um, that 30 days of training includes boring things like constitutional law, uh, use of force policies, and those are very important. Uh, report writing, uh, self-defensive tactics, uh, pepper spray usage, firearms training, uh, first aid, CPR, things like that. We're trained in the first thirty days. Some is the, that is that uh, like full time, eight hours a day? You come in at nine, you train all day in a class, like a classroom environment, hands-on training, well, supervised it training. Be, it used to be eight hours a day. You'd be sent to a local training center. We have three in the state. We have one in Farmington, we have one in Jefferson City, and one in St. Joseph. They since went, now this is what I've heard, I can't confirm this, they since went to most of it online training. Why um, are you unable to confirm that? Like, why do you not? This just happened yesterday. I just heard about this yesterday. Okay. So, uh, I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, okay. I'll get back with you on that. Okay, but okay, the, fair enough, fair enough. As part of the governor's... Uh, uh, budget last year, he decided he's going to move all the training facilities in the state, all three of them, to Cameron. And they're going to put everybody up in the old abandoned prison up there that they shuttered three or four years ago, uh, Crossroads Correctional Center. So if you're an officer or you want to be an officer and you live in Sykeston, we have a prison nearby there, you got to travel eight hours to Cameron, live inside of a prison. You can do for that a, for a month. For a month. You, with I mean, people I'm, you don't, with people you don't know during a pandemic. Not, pandemic aside, are you gonna live in a prison? <laughs> right. Right. No. Sounds so you like cut a... the watering pool in half. A good portion of our employees are single parents. So you're gonna leave your kid down there in Sykeston with whoever knows. Maybe maybe you're lucky and find a parent or grandparent. You know, co-parenting good. 
that will afford you time to spend a month up there. Horrible idea. They since decided they're going to take that prison and they're going to move everybody from Western over to there. I don't know what's going to happen with the training center now, if they're going to keep them regionalized like they are. Their best bet is to do it institutionally. We do have institutional training officers that can complete these trainings, you know, within 30 days and just have the people, if you're going to work at Jefferson City Correctional Center, that's where your training is done. It wouldn't cost the state. It would actually save the state money if you did right. that. So let's let's get back to what that training entails because I think that's and that's really interesting. And what I what I found from talking to you is that there are so many kind of unanswered questions and so many kind of on it's, it's a little bit like education, but I think people are a little bit more aware of what the challenges facing teachers and healthcare professionals are because we talk about it more. Um, and so there's it just seems like there's kind of a just constant web or maybe like various wormholes that you can go into that are challenging for corrections officers and people that work for the corrections system in Missouri. But I want to go back to this issue of like there, you know, the expectation that you would have for whether it's a member of your union or a corrections officer is that they would be trained in safety, safety measures that would protect them and the life, the life of the um, actual inmates. Um, And how much, so contrast that with how much training does someone get if they're an underpaid or at least not as well paid or compensated um, person who works in the kitchens, uh, on the janitorial staff, like how much exposure do they get to training? Like how many, how many hours? It's very little. And as, as far okay. as hours goes, I can't, I don't, I don't know. Okay. Um, it's, probably, it's probably less than 40 hours. Um, what they do is they would train them with what they call the hard skills and hard skills are your firearm CPR training, CPR and first aid. If you call, if you pass those then you can be, you can work as an officer, whether you're a secretary, a cook, maintenance person, most maintenance guys are, are trained in those anyway. Um, but you're, you're taking a 12 or $13 an hour secretary, making them work in their own street clothes inside of a housing unit next to these inmates. And they're not used to doing that. They may have been there five or six years and never been inside that prison down inside the security envelope. And all of a sudden you're going to force that person. And I mean, force, force that person to go down there and work as a corrections officer because we're so short staffed and the short staffing we're touching on this a little bit ago. It affects everybody in there, whether you work there or you live there. Um, you spend more time with these inmates than you do your own family. So if you're going through, if you're working 16, 18 hours a day, that's going to stress you out. You're going to become a little bit more short-tempered with these people, and things happen. A lot of the offenders in there, the, the lion's share, they see what we're going through, and they empathize with us. The other side of that coin is you do have violent offenders in there. Um, last time I spoke with our director, she said that our violent offender population has went up, I think she said 30% in the last 10 years. That's quite a bit. That is huge. When they do something in there, like we had some, uh, some stabbings and some staff assaults last week at volunteer prison. They locked the place down for a couple days and they let them back out. No harm, no foul. Uh, we had a, a functional unit manager get stabbed several times. He was life flighted out of that prison up to St. Louis for treatment. Um, it's a bad deal. Okay. But it's just what, in general, you're saying like, it's not, a, it's not, it's for the people that are kind of underexposed to the skill set they need to be able to sort of retain right. calm in a dangerous situation. They don't, they're not given the skill training or the experience well, or the yeah. time. 
skill training, it, it, it comes with time. It comes with, you sure, know, of course. Um, a lot of the problem that, that, I, that I'm personally seeing is we're hiring 18 year old kids now. And if you're an 18 year old kid, and that, had, was there, sorry, was there a time where you had to be 21 to work in the corrections department? Now they've, I, I know they're 21 when I started. Um, they lacked that in 2011. They dropped it to 19. And they here recently dropped it again to 18. Um, and when you, I don't know about you, I'm, I was 21 when I started. And looking back on what I know now, I'm 45. I was too young to be working in a level five prison at the Missouri State Penitentiary. But what I had to learn, I had to learn quickly, and you have to learn this, is tact. Me as a 21-year-old kid, as a kid, 18-year-old kid, you have to figure out a way to talk to a guy that's been incarcerated twice as long as you've been alive and tell him he's got, he has to do this, that, and the other. So you don't bark out orders at him. Uh, everybody has their own way of communicating. Um, when you start barking orders out at you, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm 45. I'm not going to listen to an 18-year-old kid tell me what to ever, do. Ever, you know? ever. So and the mindset, <laughs> oh, ever, that's the mindset we're in there right now. Um, and when you do start barking out orders, bad things happen. And what, sorry, what, what do you think in terms of like the ratio of like, so we have like a, how, what percentage do you think right now currently of corrections officers are 25, like 80 to 25? Like what percentage? I talked to a gal from Bowling Green, uh, night before last. And she said about 30% up there are 18 years old, 18, and 25. So how old are the supervisors in that situation? I mean, do they have I know some sergeants that are 21 years old? They've been there So you've got years. so you've got young people being managed by very young people. Yep. And we're not we're I don't want to make it sound like we're ageist. I mean, people have to start their careers when they start their careers, but what you hope is that you have a handoff of seniority and experience and that you have a lot of mentorship. Right. Um, from people like you said that, yeah, you do become more mature as you get older. Cause I was, I didn't have, I didn't have nearly as much responsibility as you did when I was 21, but I was right. still an idiot. And I'm really glad that nobody gave me any responsibility cause I would have squandered it and I would have been stupid and I would have done dumb things. I mean, I did dumb things without any responsibility. Um, right. So, so talk a little bit. What is, so t first of all, for those folks that don't know, and I, I, I personally didn't, quite know this how many corrections facilities are there institution residential correctional facilities are there in missouri and where are they right now we have 19 <clears throat> um name them all off you have maryville treatment center western missouri correctional center kansas city release center ozark correctional center moberly uh boonville licking uh south central there um jefferson city correctional center i correctional center northeast correctional center missouri eastern and pacific uh, the Reception Diagnostic Center in uh, Fulton, Reception Diagnostic in uh, Bonterre. Then you have a bunch of them. You have Farmington, you have Southeast Correctional Center in Charleston, and the two women's prisons is Chillicothe and Vandalia. The Vandalia is the Reception Diagnostic for females. And do you, do you, I've, I've heard this and I'm just curious to hear what you think. So I've heard that the female prison population in Missouri is growing exponentially faster than it has before do you can you like has that been is that something that you're aware of is that that's something that we really keep track of okay you know, right. pandemic they was taking them into uh vandalia quick i mean it was just rolling in there bus loads at a time and then transferring them out to Chillicothe. Okay. and you know that that was a, a hairy deal in itself i mean just because we're going through a pandemic doesn't mean we can stop bringing in people from county we have right. to keep this thing rolling Right. Same uh, St. Joseph. That's Diagnostic Center. Uh, 
uh, Fulton and Bonterre, those are all diagnostic centers. Can you explain what a diagnostic center is for the lay people like me, for example? uh, When you first come in out of county, um, you go to these diagnostic centers and they, they do a, they do a scoring on you, um, based on what your crime is, what your time is, how much time you were given that determines, you know, they do your mental health evaluation that determines what prison they send you out to. But, uh, you could live in a diagnostic center your entire term. So it all, it just all depends on what the case managers, the, the wardens and whoever, wherever they want to put you at is what it boils down to. They figure out your custody level different things like that. <clears throat> so if you go in, let's say you're writing bad checks and you're sentenced to five years, normally you probably do two or three years. So you go to Tipton Correctional Center. It's a lower level minimum institutional camp. So minimum, minimum level, but uh, it just depends on what you do. And that, that's what they're there for. And how many, how many of those facilities are maximum security? Oh my gosh. We got a bunch of them. We have Bowling Green. That's a Okay. Max. Well, so just give me a, like a rough number, like uh, six, I think. Okay. So at those maximum security facilities, you have your most serious violent offenders, obviously. Right. Um, in let's talk a little bit about the staffing challenges there. So in those situations, corrections officers could truly be in life-threatening situations, probably with more regularity, I would imagine, than peace officers are, because just because of the confine just because of the confinement, yeah. because of the nature of the job, and so on and so forth. Um, years ago, and this has been years ago, I'm gonna say early two thousands. Uh, higher patrol, they got a $5,000 a year raise. And the state legislature's excuse was one out of seven people they pull over are felons. Well, everybody we pull over for a past service. 100, yeah, 100% of the people that you guys deal with are felons. Yeah, 100%. So, and then that, that, that was our, you know, thing, you know, it was our little mantra back then. We Everybody we pass search, everybody we come in contact with a felon. And I don't think the custody level would dictate on how much risk you are. Um, you're, you'll have just as much risk in a county as you will a super max. Sure, sure. Uh, and it, all, it all depends on, uh, and I hate to put this back on staff, but it's, it's how you treat these guys. Right. You go in there and, he, and you treat you treat them like dirt, you're going to get treated like dirt too. Um, you'll have a target on your back. But that that's, that, that's kind of, times have changed since, I was in the prison system. I resigned in 2013 as a sergeant at Algoa. And even since then, times have changed. Um, with the influx of the violent offenders, you would think, you know, some bigger things would be happening. Uh, for instance, the lockdown we had. Uh, the inmates were not allowed visits, you know. And was this it, a lockdown during with the fur COVID or? Okay. During the pandemic, yeah. Okay. No, okay. no visits. So no visits for 15 months. If you'd have done that in 2000, or even 2010, they'd have burned the prison down. Uh, the 1950 riot, I mean, 57, 52, we had the riots here in Jeff City. That was, they, they rioted over food. The food was horrible, so they burned half the prison down. <laughs> so that's how much times have changed since then. But like I was saying earlier, I mean, we spent a lot of our time with these guys inside there, guys and gals, if you're locked up. You told me an anecdote that I thought was really, you were taught, you said you were talking to a fellow when you were still a corrections officer, you were talking to a colleague who you jokingly called your work wife, which I think is a totally okay term. And I, can you tell that story? Cause I thought that was really like, I think you know, that really we, kind of addresses the nature of your career. We were sitting in a, in a bubble and a bubble is a housing unit bubble. You know, you had your control panels in there and you could see out in the wings and we was just talking. We were just into the night shift, you know, banner back and forth. 
And we were talking about if we had a barbecue, if we had barbecue out here at my house, who would we invite? And we came up with, we tend to invite 10 people. We decided we're going to have uh, three inmates and the rest were staff members, or three, three staff members and the rest were inmates. But we, we do get along with a lot of those guys in there. And that, that doesn't happen overnight. Right. And there's, there's a rapport you got to build up with these guys. And you spend and, a ton of time with inmates too. I mean, they I mean, are really like, it's, I mean, it's a very residential situation, right? So you see the best of them, the worst of them, the best days they have, the worst days they have. Right. Um, well, if you have, if you have good rapport with the majority of the population in there, and then you get some guy in there that wants to come at you for something, the other guys would be like, hey, wait a minute, you, you, you got to watch who you're talking to over there. That's Officer Cut, or that's Officer Smith or whoever. And they do, they do do that. Um, it's just, a, and, so you're, saying, so you're saying the rapport helps everyone from becoming to de- prevents everyone from becoming dehumanized. It helps yeah. the pr- inmates from be- being dehumanized by the officers and it helps the officers not be dehumanized by the yeah. inmates. Well, and that rapport can go both ways too. Sure. Um, I have a lot of female friends that work in there that have really good rapport with some of these guys. They can get a lot of things done, but the administrative staff or their immediate supervisors are looking from the outside, looking in at this, watching the banner back and forth, they're building rapport, the male and the female. Then all of a sudden she's being targeted by her administration. You must be having sex with that offender. You must be bringing things in. Does that, does that have, I mean, I would assume there's, there, there are very strict laws that say what you can and can't do with a, we'll say a word of the state, right? Like you definitely can't have intercourse with them. That is sexual assault, period, full stop. Yeah. So felony. Right. So, so that's really interesting. So what kind of like, so you're saying that there's just a lot of presumptuousness on the half of administration in terms of the intimacy levels, the, the friendliness, the kind of obvious affection that uh, corrections officers and inmates often have for each other because you guys are just kind of around each other all the time. Right. Um, My mom, she worked there for years and years and years. Was, no, that's right. So were, were both your parents in corrections or just your mother? Stepdad, retired captain. And okay. my mom, she's a retired sergeant. And my mom dealt with that all the time from her from her administration. She'd be out there on the yard and, you know, just talking to an inmate. Just, they call it jeffing. They'd be out there jeffing with an inmate and, you know, having a good what time. What does jeffing come from? What is that? that? That's a conversation you're having with one another. I don't okay. know. I don't all know right. where from. <laughs> okay. I've never yeah. heard that before. All right. That's prison lingo. Okay. I could probably educate you a lot on so- prison yeah, yeah. So, so that's interesting. So, do you think that's because is there is there a lack of female representation on the side of the administration? So, it's is it mostly that it's men? Is it mostly that I it's? I don't know if it's lack of representation. I think it's uh, it's it's too much presumption, um, because there are a lot of females that get in trouble doing that. An oddly amount of females get in trouble for doing that, and uh, it just it, it looks bad on every other female that wants to work so, there. So, so talk to me a little bit. So, right now. Um, in terms of like giving it sort of a letter grade of, we'll say falling levels of, I don't know, quality in terms of like the career path, the conditions the inmates are living in, um, over the court, like how much has it gotten worse, better, the same in the, say like the past. If, if I would grade on career path, I'd grade in an A plus. You can go from a corrections officer to a warden. Our, our current uh, deputy division director, he started off as a storekeeper, and now he's running the entire division of adult institutions. 
And do you think that shows like some improvement in the, or is it just because there's such a lack of, is there such a recruitment issue that the, there's just that much more opportunity for people once they're in the. It's it's both. It's a, it's a recruitment, it's a recruitment issue. Um, We don't, we don't usually have a lot of people with bachelor's degrees want to come work there as a corrections officer. Sure. But people that do come in like our division director uh, while he was there, he got a lot of education and that, that, that's part, that's because of the department. Right. He got that position, and now he's in the position he's in now. So there is a lot of room. It's like I said, A plus for room for advancement. Um, as far as working conditions, I would give it right now a, a BNF wow. for for frontline staff, and it's because they're being so worked, and they're overworked. Or they're, what yeah, are... I mean, it's, it's it's horrible situation they're in. Um, you have most of our institutions now have went to twelve hour shifts. They're going from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. How many single parents do you know could do that? I mean, you couldn't. You could never have a social life working 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Could you sleep in during that other 12 hours? Hey, folks, Adam Summer for a quick break here. Just want to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, election season is upon us. Municipal elections, April 5th, 2022. Absentee voting is open. It opened on February 22nd, so check that out. Make sure you're registered where you're supposed to vote. March 9th, 2022 is the deadline for registration. You can follow us online at the Heartland Pod on Twitter. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find our website, heartlandpod.com. It's got links to all of our shows. And it also has a link to our Patreon. Sign up at five bucks a month and you can get access to extra shows and our blog features and so much more. Let's get back to the chat with Tim Cutt. How long have they been working under 12-hour shift conditions? Uh, it started a couple years ago. And they did it, you know, doing one person at a time, seeing how it works. And, you know, they're losing a lot of people because of that. But some of them actually like it. Um, the people that were working 16, 18 hours a day, six days a week, they like it. People that are close to retirement, I ain't doing that. People that are single Who parent. People that were can. working, how was it working out that people were working 16 to 18 hours a day? Like, how was that, how was that even possible? What normally would happen is you come in, let's say you start at 7 a.m., okay, and you work from 7 to 3. You get ready to go home. Your captain's on the phone. I need you to work over, four hours over. You work your four hours over. You want to go home. Ah, I need you to stay. So-and-so didn't show up. So you're working a shift and a half or shift in two thirds. It, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's a fine line to walk. You know, you put yourself in the ship commanders or the, the major's position. You have to get these things covered. These posts have to be covered. Sure. And you do whatever you can to cover them. And then now here's another thing too. Let's say you're working 20, 30 hours extra a week. And you just broke down tired so bad, you can't do no more. So you tell the shift commander, I'm not doing it. I'm refusing. Then they write you up. That's the biggest problem right there. They will write you up and put you in for disciplinary action for refusing to work overtime. So even if you've worked, say, three, four, 15-hour shifts in a row or something, you're exhausted. You, that doesn't matter. You can't. So talk- you have an autistic child at the house. I've seen that one. Um, they don't care you're looking down the barrel of, of a divorce. They don't care about that one. They want you there on that job. It, it's, un, it's untenable. That's why I give that right now and now. So talk a little bit about, we'll, we'll get into the, um, the legal action that you guys have been battling with for a while in a minute, but I want to talk a little bit about your, um, your union and what it, what you can, what you've been doing in terms of ad, advocacy, um, 
where your hands, where, where you've been able to, where you can be effective and where you really feel like your hands are tied as far as um, being able to advocate for your members? Okay. Well, as far as being able to advocate, our hands are tied right now. And that's due to funding. Okay. Uh, a lot of our constituents, they're like, oh, the association, all they care about is the money. Well, what they don't know is I'm not making any money doing this. I'm actually paying some of the association's bills out of my own pocket because they can't afford it. Has that okay. been happening for a while? It's been going on for two years now. Um, what, bills since, are you, what bills are you paying yourself? Just the internet access, the, the, their, their phone bill. I'm paying for all that. Okay. But this started in 2019 when the Office of Administration decide on, decided on their own to stop our payroll deduction. That was a benefit that we had before we were a union. Uh, from 2000 to 2004, we were just a lobbying organization. We were an employee-owned association. In 2004, we uh, challenged the union in power at the time for the right to bargain, and we won. And we became a 501c5. Uh, before that, we were a C3. Um, they decided since all the labor contracts expired, they're going to cut everybody's payroll deduction off. So we have a lawsuit pending now. It's in Kansas City Appellate Court right yeah, now. Yeah, so talk, so talk about – so that was – you said something really interesting. So there was – an administrator. This did, did this. This did not happen from the legislature, right? This happened. This was an administrative decision, correct? Well, this came from some attorney at Office of Administration. They decided on their own they're going to bankrupt that association, and they did. And, uh, and so, talk. So let's let's walk through the right to work battle. So for people that don't know the right to work battle, you just rolled your eyes. We're yeah. going to talk a little bit about the right to work battle in Missouri, which is. It, uh, one that is near and dear to my heart. Um, so uh, I came here in 2016 and I walked into, uh, let's just say an activist community that was consumed with, we have to stop right to work legislation. And so at that time, gosh, this it just seems like it just never is going to stop. And I don't think it ever will. <laughs> at that point, the voters had refused right to work already and the legislature had sent another ballot initiative back to the voters to try and undo that again, I think. I think that's right. In 2016, Eric Greitens went on a statewide campaign signing in right to work. The unions got together and said, you can't do that. It's unconstitutional. That violates Missouri state constitution. So they said, okay, we'll send to the ballot box. 63% of Missourians says we don't want right to work. And it's funny how they name it right to work because it has a good connotation to it. It's one of the best. It's one of the best that they've ever done. They'll name anything they can to make it sound good and tickle the ears for the vote for the voters. The voters were smarter than that, so they voted it down. The following year, they're like, "Well, and that was twenty. That was twenty. Twenty sixteen. Okay, right. When it went to the vote. That's right. Twenty eighteen is when they decided to do two bills. The two bills were designed to target both unions, public sector and private sector. The public sector bill was House, or was a Senate Bill 1007, that merit reform I was talking about. The other one was House Bill 1413, which gutted the Carpenters Union, Pipefitters Union. They won that lawsuit. We won our lawsuit. They're both still in limbo right now. Uh, the last court hearing, the last judgment we had, Judge Beaton ruled in our favor, saying that you have to get back to the bargaining table. You cannot use this bill as an excuse not to bargain. Governor Parson has thumbed his nose at that decision. He's told twice during the same trial to get back to the bargaining table. They're not doing it. We had a regime change. Um, first, because Greitens resigned. 
and second because Parson was reelected. So two different administrations, sort of two different people, but kind of the same person. Um, Why is it that you think that Governor Parson, who's a very Christian law and order, he used to be a sheriff, right? Like he's a law enforcement, he's a retired, well, you know, he had the, whatever. He was a sheriff 30 years ago. Yeah. Hickory County or Cedar County. But still, like, you, but the way that you would hear him talk about it, that's what, you know, the way you'd hear him talk about it, you would think that he was up until the, yes. So when you, um, what, tell me a little bit about your relationship with his office and the sure. other. Does he does he ever communicate with you guys? Who does who does he communicate with when he is dealing with the if corrections? We have, if we have an issue with the Department of Corrections, he will send it over to Adam Albach. And Adam's who is a, that? Adam's great guy. He's the DOC's liaison to the governor's office. Okay. So he'll take he'll take whatever concerns you have, whether it be my concerns. And I don't even reach out to him because it's a waste of time. So we have employees that will reach out to the governor's office. He will say, I see your concerns. I'm going to give them to your director. Now, you may be complaining about your director in this. So I'm going to give it to your director. There's no so oversight. It's a, so it's a little bit like the SEC, right? Like the, the, it's all the same people. Like some people that are, it's all the yeah. same people. Yeah. When um, you do something, something goes bad in the Department of Corrections, they do their own investigation. They find themselves not at fault. It's a Fox Washington hen house. There's no oversight whatsoever. And then they get, you know, irritated at me because I want to, you know, front them, you know, bust them out or whatever they want to put. And, uh, yeah, they don't have nothing to do with me either. Governor Parsons, I won't even waste my time reaching out to his administration. They are totally so anti-union. I mean, it just drips from them. You know, you can tell. But, yeah, I, I, I have a hard – I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, so – there was something else that I wanted to, so, so let's just talk for a second about what would have happened. Do you think from, I mean, I know you're not, you are, let's be clear. You are not in, you are not, do you do not serve in an administrative capacity for the correction system at this time? You're an advocate for a sector of people that work within the corrections system, but I would like to hear your opinion on what would happen to those facilities if the average worker was paid $15 an hour, like wh- how much do you think it would help in the near term? And let's say like the next like year to 18 months or something. It would definitely help. You know, don't get me wrong. Um, a lot of the secretaries working here make 12, 13 bucks an hour, which ain't a whole lot. Um, it would definitely help with the recruiting. Um, the state benefits, even though they've you know been dissipated since, you know, the last 10 years, they've taken a big hit. It's still better than you're going to get at most private companies. So they do have a good retirement system. Uh, decent insurance. I mean, it's insurance has gone up in the last 10 years, but it's still pretty good insurance. And for the most part, these prisons are put in these economically depressed areas. Uh, right in the town next to me in Tipton, Missouri, there's nothing there. You either work at the prison or a gas station. There's nothing there. I mean, there's no industry there at all. So you're going to drive 45 minutes to Sedalia or an hour, 45 minutes to an hour to Jefferson City to work. So there's nothing around these areas. Licking, they put these prisons in these areas, I'm thinking on purpose, so they have a semi-stable workforce. Not a bad idea, but we were talking about earlier, you have family that work in the Department of Corrections, and so do I. Corrections is a family business, and Precise said that several times, and she's not wrong there. The problem is, I have two kids right now that are eligible to start Department of Corrections tomorrow, but they know what I deal with. They don't want, they don't want nothing to do with it anymore. So they're going from a family business to 
something to gossip around the kitchen table about. You know, nobody wants to work there anymore. Right, right. Um, um, sorry, I'm going to pause for a second. I'm saying I'm going to pause for a second so that when Adam cuts this together, he knows that I'm pausing for a second. Yeah. Uh, just to kind of think about what I, because I, I want to wrap it up, but I want to think about. Um, well, let's talk about the pay raise. It's five and a half percent COLA raise. Okay, let's start there. So let's talk a little bit about the cost of living adjustment um, or lack thereof for, I mean, this, this affects every statewide worker, right? This affects, this affects everyone who doesn't have an advanced degree and works in an administrative capacity, probably in any across a variety of departments in Missouri. Now, this is just my own opinion. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Let's take somebody that's, let's say they're secretary make 12 bucks an hour. You give them making five and a half percent more than that because he got them a raise. Why would you then up their pay again to $15 an hour? When if you give them the five and a half percent raise, that puts you above the market minimum, which means they're saving money, not only saving money, but saving face by keeping you off of Medicaid. If he didn't do the five and a half percent raise, his state employees would qualify for Medicaid and other uh, welfare benefits depending on the size of your family. So it wasn't because he's so benevolent and wanted to give you some money because you're a good state employee. He did it to save the state state money. Well, he also looked to be fair to Mike Parson. He was, he tried to pass the $15 an hour. It was the extremists in his own party that gave, that would not give him the minimum wage adjustment. So to, to be, I don't want to say fair, um, he but quite that hard for it. I mean, he didn't. I, yeah. Know. I, yeah. It, 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 I think he was a little bit, I think for my, from my standpoint, it looks like he was pretty surprised that he wasn't able to sort of like wave his arm and get whatever he wanted from a right. group of people that he probably doesn't have maybe the best relationship with. Um, so let me just ask another question. When you're kind of doing your advocacy work and trying to figure out a way to sort of, I don't know, move the, move the conversation or, or, or move the discussion I mean, first of all, you have to deal with this lawsuit, which is still ongoing. And the lawsuit is so that the union can, can once again drag people back to the bargaining table, which is the right of kind of the, the hallmark of supporting working class people right. and also uh, withhold union dues from their paychecks, correct? Different lawsuit. Oh, there's um, two lawsuits? There's three. There's three. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I only knew of the one. I'm so sorry. I talk about the biggest one. Okay. Uh, All right. Go ahead. One that we, the state owes us $113 million for our overtime that we have. Uh, the premise let's, say, let's, let's, let's say that again. Hold on. Just, just say that number one time. The state owes corrections officers $113 million with an M. They were awarded $113.7 million. When did that happen? 2018. Oh my gosh. Okay. But here's the, here's the kicker. It went, we won $113 million lawsuit in a jury trial, uh, plus 9% interest until they pay it until it goes through all the steps. It goes to the appellate court in Kansas city. We won there. Who appealed, who appealed it? Did the, the the state state attorney general, was that attorney general Howley or attorney general Schmidt? That was, uh, it was the one before Holly. Okay. I wouldn't. Then, then Holly took it. Now Schmidt has it. Anyway, so they've they all they've all been kicking it down the curb. They've all been doing everything they can uh, to not. That's, that's the right. That's an appellate right. So you know, if if I got sued for 113 million dollars, you're damn right I'm going to appeal it. You know, 
So we won in, we won in Kansas City, and we go to the Supreme Court in Missouri. Uh, they say, yeah, uh, we, we agree with you because anything you're doing inside the prison to get ready for your shift, that's compensable time. We don't agree with the money, though. That's a lot of damn money, basically what they said. So they kicked it back down to the circuit court in Cool County. Uh, Judge Cotton Walker is going to be hearing that. And we have a new dollar figure. And it's a lot more than 113 million. So, so with the so so the, with the hope that they could lower the price tag for this settlement for funds that should have been paid in wages and damages and so forth, um, which is how lawsuits work. When you sue somebody, you sue for damages, so the lawyers get paid. Right. Um, so now you're you're you, you do you well we'll talk about that a little bit more. But your your intent is to get above the amount that was originally awarded to you. So how much time has the state been spending fighting its own? corrections officers and paying you overtime money it was filed in 2012 so 10 years 10 years a decade so so taxpayer money has been going towards fighting against a reward for state employees who have I what i think would be your money you have you know you have a hundred attorney generals over there you know just sitting on their hands not doing anything and you're paying them anyway so why not pay them to litigate this so whether they're wasting money on that, but what they're wasting money on is they can make a decision today to start paying our guys and gals for that activity, but they won't do it. They were ordered to get time clocks in. They did it, but they did it wrong. And now they're not even using them. What was so, incorrect about the way they implemented the time cards? Do, let's say you work at a factory. The first thing you're going to do when you walk through that front door is clock in. Right. That's all we wanted. Right. So the state decides they're going to put a clock in at every post. So if you go to the front office and you're getting your keys and your radio and you're doing all this stuff before you actually get to your post, then you clock in, you're still doing all the stuff not getting paid for. it. So those clocks aren't even being used anymore. All we wanted was one. And they bought 20 or 30 of them per, per institution and they put them in. So what kind of money did that waste? Anyway, we have trial coming up in June on that one. Uh, back to the appellate or back to the circuit court so so how much time do you spend right now so there's three different lawsuits that are going on how much of your time is spent and granted look this is this is this is something that i would think like most people that work for unions um are going to deal with court actions although my mother was uh a member of her board her national the the nea so she was the nea rep in denver she was a teacher and i don't they never went to court. She never sued any. They never sued anybody. They negotiated, and usually Denver schools is like, "Yeah, sure, here." We could file a lot more lawsuits if we had the money. We need to file lawsuits that need to be filed, but the association can't afford anymore. Right, so, right. No matter, but but I'm just saying, like for people that are anti-union, unions normally don't are not asked to be this litigious because right. there's a better relationship between the the state and the employees that serve that well, state. Let's talk about that for a second too. The people that are anti-union. That most of the people that are anti-union, I can see their point. Because because the union and people's minds are the Teamsters or those types of unions. And those unions, if you want to get down to it, they've outlived their purpose. We now have National Labor Relations Act that the unions lobbied for. We have the Fair Labor Standards Act they lobbied for. We have OSHA. We have job site protections for these people. What people don't understand is when it comes to public sector employees, we don't fall under none of that. We don't fall under the National Labor Relations Act. 
The only thing we actually really fall under is the uh, Family Medical Leave Act, FMLA. It's the only benefits you got. Other benefits that you want, if you want to be included on the Fair Labor Standards Act, that's got to be written in the contract, your work agreement. If you want to fall under the National Labor Relations Act, that has to be written in your contract. So any benefits that you think you might have as a state employee, you have none unless it's in your active labor agreement. These public sector unions are very much needed. Whether you're a state, city, federal, any kind of public sector employee, you have to have that labor agreement in place if you want any kind of federal protections. If it's not there, you're not protected. A lot of people don't understand that. Well, they will now, hopefully. Um, so let me let's let's finish up with um, of the institution. So so each of these institutions, each of these facilities, I should say, is in a congressional Missouri congressional district. Have you had any support from the the elected representation for those either on the Senate, Missouri Senate side or the Missouri House side? Do you hear from your lawmakers? No, actually, I reached out to a few of them a couple of years or last year. And with the supermajority we have of Republicans, it doesn't matter if you're union or not. They'll, they'll feed you a line, just get you out of their office. The only people that I've actually had good constructive conversations with are Democrats. But since we have a supermajority, their voice is so quiet, it, you don't even hear them. Um, and it, it's, it's a shame. It's sad. We have no checks and balances over there in Jeff City right now. Um, whatever Republican wants, they're going to get. So I, there's nobody stopping. I mean, I went, to, I went to a corrections committee. One in particular, I remember from last year, we had three Democrats on that committee. And every time one of those Democrats would say something, Caleb Rowden would rudely, and I, you know, I've, I've known Caleb, I don't, I don't know him personally, but he would really, he would interrupt him. He'd look at him, go, okay, moving on. Wouldn't even give these people a chance to talk. And I thought, you know, that's, that, that's your supermajority talking right there. And they right. can get away with it. They can get right. away with it. Um, yeah, we talk about that a lot. Um, that's an understatement. That's that's a major <laughs> understatement that we talk about that a lot. No, I, I think competitive government is important, and I think uncompetitive government is a disaster. And I don't I don't think any monoparty is good for anybody. Um, so, well, first of all, I want to thank you so much um, for coming on the podcast. I'm going to ask you to reach out whenever you want to come back on and kind of talk, especially about the various challenges that you're facing in court. If there's something, if there's any, I mean, this is a, a very complicated issue. It's a very complex issue. We could probably talk for another two or three hours because you're a fun guy to talk to and you know a lot. Um, if there's one thing that someone listening to this could do to, I, I don't know, to kind of help the situation, we'll just say it that. So again, we're talking about the welfare and the safety of incarcerated peoples in Missouri. That is something that should be a bipartisan issue. It should sure. be bipartisan because progressives should care about what happens. That's, that's human rights, like all those things. We're talking about human rights and labor rights. Those are two top, those are like very, very, very critical issues normally for progressives. And for conservatives, um, law and order is always kind of security. Those are always sort of things that are extremely popular to sort of talk about. Is there... It's popular to talk about. It's not popular to do anything about it. Correct, correct. <laughs> so, so when you're thinking about... When, when, when you're, if you're somebody listening to this podcast, um, what would you want somebody to do? So who's new to this issue, who doesn't necessarily have a family that works in corrections, maybe who lives in St. Louis County or who lives in the Kansas City metro area. What, what can they do to help increase the pay of, 
um, corrections officers and increase the safety of uh, incarcerated persons in Missouri? It boils down to the ballot box. When you vote for somebody, you make sure you know their record. You make sure you know what they stand for and what they stand against. Um, people always have a, ha a bad habit of voting for an R or a D. We need to get out of that mindset. Just because you're a Republican doesn't mean you're, you're Donald Trump. Just because you're riding his coattails, like I could mention somebody else here in Missouri, doesn't mean you're going to be, be the same kind of person that he is. Our, just because you're a Democrat doesn't mean you're going to be a nut job beltway Democrat either. So we have our nut jobs and our extremists on both sides. Stop voting for a particular club, the R club or the D club. That's the biggest problem that we have right now. Stop doing that and vote for whoever's best for the job. If, you, if you're a hardcore Democrat and you see a Republican that's best for the job, then by all means vote R. The problem is we're locked in this two-party system and everybody, you know, I got to be part of this club or I got to be part of this club. Stop doing that. Be, just make an educated vote. I, I, I can't think of a better way to end this. Tim Cut, thank you so much. You'll come back. Yeah, you'll talk to us more. Anytime you want me back. You're welcome. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. All right, you have a good day. Heartland Pod is a production of Midmap Media, LLC. Follow us on Twitter with at the Heartland Pod. With email, you can reach us, heartlandpod2020 at gmail.com. Online with heartlandpod.com. Subscribe and please sign up for our Patreon with patreon.com slash heartlandpod. Become a podhead or an official podgressive today and unlock all of our content. See you at the next show. <laughs>